Our scripture reading today is from Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. We'll be reading all of chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 to 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because of our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, It's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, This morning, I have the privilege of introducing a new series that we're going to be in for the next nine weeks in the book of Thessalonians. Uh, It's called, or the title of the series is Gospel-Shaped Family. I'm really excited uh, to be studying this book together. Um, But before we get into it this morning, let me go ahead and pray for us. Father in heaven, we come before you, and God, we just ask that Uh, You would humble our hearts before you, God. Uh, Would you show us our need for you, our need for your spirit to be at work inside of us? Uh, Lord, would you please be so kind and so merciful to to use me this morning? Um, Open our hearts to your word, Lord. Would you please bless us, God? Draw us close to yourself. Uh, Father, we love you and we desire to love you and know you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, when we think about Paul's letters, it's probably not the first one that we think about. When we think about Paul's letters, probably Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians. Uh, our mind doesn't immediately jump to Thessalonians, but there's a, a lot that we can learn in this book. Um, and part of that has to do with the fact that Thessalonians is written to a unique context. So Paul... So this church plant, Paul was abruptly separated from this very young church plant in Thessalonica. Uh, He had been with this congregation for almost a month. So so not even a month. He's with this congregation for almost a month. And then the uh, Jewish religious authorities, they persecute Paul and he was driven out of the city. So we can read about this a little bit, a little bit in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts 17 verses 5 through 9, we'll have that on the uh, screen. All right, so this is Paul being driven out of Thessalonica. But the Jews were jealous. So they were jealous of Paul. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, 
These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So we can see right here uh, that the life of the Thessalonian church was significantly disrupted uh, because they were living in light of the truth that there is another king, the true king, whose name is Jesus. And so living under the authority of the true king, we can see, is going to inevitably disturb the culture around you. Uh, Western society, American society has its kings. Money, pleasure, power, right? These are the things that people pursue. These are the things that people submit their lives to. So when the world sees that money is not the ultimate thing to live for, and that there's something far better than physical pleasure, and that relationships aren't for gaining power, it's bound to cause a disturbance. And that's what happened right here in the book of Acts. The values that the Thessalonian church lived by did not align with the Roman Empire, and that led to the persecution that we read about. So before this church was able to establish really any kind of rhythm, any real foundation, right? They had three, maybe four weeks with Paul, so before they could establish a rhythm, their lead pastor, Paul, he was taken away from them. He was driven out of the city. And I am sure that that didn't create a feeling of stability or success in the Thessalonian church. So this is important to think about. This is the context that Paul was writing to, instability and opposition. The Thessalonian church, in other words, had every reason to doubt if they were going to make it or not. They had every reason to doubt if they were going to succeed as a church body. And what we see in our text this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is a picture that success as a Christian does not depend on how things appear on the outside. Chapter 1, we see, we just, we just read it, it's very, very positive. Chapter 1 is a thanksgiving and an affirmation. Here, Paul's purpose is to give thanks for his church. So Paul's very positive. He highlights the things that they have done right, the things that they have done well. Paul is, in effect, saying, you have done well, church. He's saying that to this church, this church in Thessalonica, faced with instability, opposition, and doubts. In a sense, he's saying to them, you have been successful. So this should challenge us then to think about what it takes to succeed as believers and as a church. In other words, how do we measure our success? It's like the baseline question we get from this text. How do we measure our success? Is it in how many members we have? Or is it if we've adopted the latest leadership strategies? Or if we have a big budget? No, it's none of those things. Paul's answer to the question, how do you measure your success, has to do with God's faithfulness. According to Paul, the gospel and its outcomes in the life of the Thessalonian church is the reason for his positive assessment. It's the reason for his thanksgiving. The measure of success for Paul was the gospel and its outcomes. And that really is our main idea, put a little bit more concisely here. 
we can say that the power, so this is the main idea of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the power of the gospel evident in the Thessalonian church is Paul's reason for gratitude before God. Again, the power of the gospel evident in the Thessalonian church is Paul's reason for gratitude. So let me summarize it like this. Uh, I'm sure most of us know the hymn, Jesus Paid It All, right? Jesus Paid It All, all to him I owe. Um, this hymn gives us a very concise statement about the gospel and about the Christian life. So take a look with me at the screen. We can say that the gospel is the fact that Jesus paid it all. And we don't just want to stop there. Jesus not only paid for all the wrong that we've done, but he's also provided all the righteousness that we need. So the gospel is the fact that Jesus paid it all. The Christian life, in turn, is a life that is defined by the phrase, all to him I owe. That is the Christian life, a life that understands that we owe him everything. You see, the gospel is an objective truth that makes a real difference in the lives of real people. Not fake people, so you don't need to come to church like bringing your fake self, right? Hiding all the things that might be wrong. No, we are a body, we are a community of real people that need a real savior. The fact that Jesus paid it all makes a real difference and that difference was seen in the lives of the Thessalonians. They were people who lived like they owed him everything. And so the power of the gospel was evident in their lives, and it was evident in these three points that Paul highlights in the text. Number one, the power of the gospel was evident in their reception of the gospel message. Number two, in the way that they imitated Jesus Christ despite their suffering. And then number three, the power of the gospel was evident in the proclamation of God's grace through their example. So continuing with point number one, we know that Paul opens up with his positive statement, we give thanks always. And then in verses four through five, here we see the basis for Paul's thanksgiving. He says in verse four, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So the ground for Paul's thanksgiving is the fact that something that has been made known to him, namely, that the Thessalonian church is chosen by God. So what I want to highlight here, or what the text highlights for us, is the fact that Paul's thanksgiving is rooted in the sovereign work of God, not in the achievements of the Thessalonians. The fact, it's, his thanksgiving is rooted in the fact that God has done something for them that they never could have done for themselves. You know, one thing that I find rather awkward um, is doing job interviews for churches. That's been my experience. Maybe some of you can share uh, this sentiment a little bit, but at a job interview, right, you want to highlight 
all the ways that you are capable. You want to highlight all your achievements and why you think you're just going to crush it at this job. But as a Christian, and certainly as a pastor, you also want to somehow highlight how you're super humble. And those two things don't seem to to mesh together. Right? Me talking about all my capabilities and achievements doesn't seem very humble. What Paul gets at here is that what sets us apart as Christians, what indicates our success is not our capabilities or achievements, but the fact that God has acted upon you. The fact that he has chosen you, done something to your life, set you apart to serve him. And so for me as a pastor here, what qualifies me is not that I can get up in front of people and ramble about the Bible or that I can stumble through some announcements. The only thing that I bring to the table is the fact that God has done something for me that I never could have done for myself. He has made my weakness apparent in such a way that I know that I desperately need him every moment of every day for the rest of my life. Nothing apart from that will help me as a pastor. Paul's thanksgiving is rooted in God's sovereign, merciful choosing, his merciful election of his people. And here's how he knows that God has chosen them. He says in verse 5, because our gospel came to you, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Now, if you think about it, this is a pretty interesting way to talk about the gospel, right? The gospel's a message, right? The gospel is not a person. No, the the gospel's a, a message. It's a word. Yet here, the message is the thing that's performing the action, It's the message. The gospel is the subject of the actions, the subject of the verb. He says, the gospel came to you. It came in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The truth about the gospel is not that you do something with it. Rather, it does something to you. So all the talk about inviting Jesus into your heart... I mean, I I get the good intentions behind that. But the gospel is not you inviting Jesus into your heart. As if the sovereign God of the universe is just waiting for your call and your beckoning. Dead hearts don't make invitations. The gospel is that Jesus has acted upon your heart in the power of his spirit, in that he has invited you. He has extended his invitation to you to be in his family. It is his invitation. God has shown mercy. He has chosen his church. And that is where Paul's thanksgiving is rooted. That's where the heart of Christian gratitude is. It's God-centered. Now, the second way we see the power of the gospel in the Thessalonian church is in their imitation uh, of Christ in their suffering. So point number two here. So we, we read about how Paul was persecuted by the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica. 
He was driven out of the city. And we also saw how some of the members of the church were persecuted, right? Jason and the brothers. Acts records that they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, and then uh, money was extorted from them. So these people were really mistreated. And there's no reason to think that this kind of treatment stopped after Paul was kicked out of the city. Yet, what's interesting is that Paul doesn't tell them to go into hiding. He doesn't tell them to fight a culture war. He doesn't tell them to go protesting. No, what he does in this context, in this situation, is he affirms them. He gives thanks for them. Because in receiving the word and having the joy of the Spirit, despite their affliction, they are in fact imitating the Lord Jesus, not just Paul. They're imitating Jesus in the way that they have joy, in the way that they obey God despite their suffering. So here's how we see this dynamic in the life of Jesus. Jesus, for example, he received the word of the Father. John 10 verse 18 says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus, even though he was God and he has authority over life, he has the authority to take up his life, So even though he has the authority of God, he was still obedient to the word of the Father. So obedience is the first way that we imitate Jesus. That's what Paul highlights. Jesus also, on top of this, he enjoyed uh, an incredibly close fellowship with the Holy Spirit. John 14, uh, verses 16 and 17, here Jesus says, And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So we see this title helper capitalized right in the ESV. This title can also be translated as advocate. I think that's what the NIV uses advocate. And that means advocate in a legal sense, a legal advocate. And the reason I highlight this is because in the first century, uh, you wouldn't do what we do today. Like if we're in legal legal trouble, we would hire a professional lawyer to be our legal advocate. That's not what you would do in first century Judea. No, your legal advocate would be the person that knew you best. That would be your advocate in court. The one who has known you the longest and can attest to your character the best. So in other words, your best friend. Your best friend would be your legal advocate. This is the kind of friend the Holy Spirit was to Jesus. Despite the struggles and the unbelievable opposition that Jesus faced, he enjoyed and was sustained by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And get this, the Holy Spirit attested to the character, to the identity of Jesus. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, he says that Jesus was declared the Son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit by his resurrection. 
the Holy Spirit was the companion that vindicated Jesus, that attested to the character and identity of Jesus Christ. So church, what we see here is that it is these two things, obedience to the word and fellowship in the Holy Spirit. These two things are what are central to imitating the Lord. Okay, I'm not, that might seem obvious, but uh, at least for me, uh, it's not always clear how exactly we go about imitating Jesus. Sometimes we might think, well, I'm going to imitate Jesus by being really nice. Now, it's not a bad thing to be really nice, but that's not what Paul is highlighting. It's not a bad thing to be a humanitarian, but what Paul highlights, what he chooses to highlight here is obedience to the word and fellowship in the spirit. And it is this actually that, like this is another key way uh, that, the, that the Trinity shapes the Christian life. Because we imitate the Lord Jesus Christ by obedience to the word of the Father in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So here, another way that the Trinity shapes the Christian life, and this was uh, how the power of the gospel was revealed in the Thessalonian church. And it is at this point that I really want to affirm, personally, this is, I personally want to affirm each and every one of you. Because Pillar Church, you have imitated Christ despite incredible difficulties, long deployments, short deployments, being away from your family, uh, strenuous hours at your work, having so little margin in your life. There are so many reasons for you to just scale back and step away from community and church life, yet I have seen a sincere desire from you to be obedient and to know the Lord and the fellowship of the Spirit. God is of primary importance to you. And look, no one had to tell me that. I've just been able to observe that. I can see that. That is how you have imitated Christ and your imitation has blessed me. It has challenged me and it has pointed me to the very real power of Jesus. You see, the reason why imitation is so powerful is because Jesus can and does make a difference. Simple, simple truth. And you have lived in light of that truth. You have been a testimony showing that the power of the church is not in programs, it's not in the latest ministry strategies, it's not in how capable its leaders are, but the power of the church is located in the gospel. And it is this kind of imitation that leads to a powerful proclamation of the character of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our last point. In verses 8 and 9, Paul writes that in imitating Jesus Christ, the church has become an example that has resulted in the proclamation of the gospel message. So verse 8 here. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. 
For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So just a couple things we want to note here. Paul is not saying that uh, if you're a good example, then you don't need to say anything, right? You don't need to actually preach the gospel message. That's not what he's saying. No, he says here that there is no need for us to say anything because other people already are. Okay, it's not that Paul's not saying anything, right? He's Paul. Of course he's preaching the gospel. What he's saying is that your example of imitating Christ despite your suffering, is such a clear message of the power of the gospel that it is hard to miss. So many other people are already talking about it. So there is a word that accompanies an example. And likewise, there should be an example that accompanies our word. And it doesn't mean that our example has to be perfect, but it does need to be patterned after Jesus Christ. So that means, again, obedience to the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The imitation of the Thessalonian church, their imitation of Christ led to a powerful proclamation of the gospel. Now, is anyone here familiar with Eric Liddell? Uh, Chariots of Fire, famous Scottish sprinter, So he was an Olympic champion, Olympic champion sprinter, and he was also a missionary to China. And because of his desire, his great desire to be a missionary, people thought that Eric was crazy. Before he became a missionary, he won gold at the 1924 Paris Olympics. And you know what? That meant he could have enjoyed all types of sponsorship deals, like he could have had his own shoe line. He could have gotten a shoe deal. And it also happens that he was a, uh, a rather famous preacher at the time, so he could have been a preacher with a shoe deal. Now, I'll admit that sounds pretty cool. And so if Nike's listening, you know, you come talk to me. I got like 50 followers on Instagram. He could have enjoyed all sorts of fame and luxury. And you know what? He was at the height of his career and his athletic ability when he chose to go to China, when he chose to become a missionary. And because of this, he received all kinds of opposition from his countrymen, from the British Olympic Association, and from Christians even. Christians were saying to him, why don't you use your influence for Christ here? Be an athlete. Be famous. Get your shoe deal. Use your fame for Christ. You'll impact more people here. Like he was packing out churches. You'll impact more people here. Your witness will be greater. That sounds kind of enticing. But Eric rejected the idols of his culture. He lived under the authority and rule of another king the true king. He knew that Jesus paid it all, so his life was defined by the phrase, all to him I owe. 
And so he went to China. Eventually he died there in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And he became known for the hospitality that he showed to even the poorest farmers and the enduring hope he had in the promises of our Lord Jesus. And today, in secular communist China, in Shandong province, there is a memorial to Eric Liddell, a grand statue with a marble memorial and an inscription labeling him a hero. Right, this is a communist homage to a man known to be a Christian missionary. One of his daughters told reporters in China, she said, everyone wants a piece of my dad. I have heard Chinese, Scots, and Englishmen claim him as their own. Actually, he belonged to God. Eric's example led to and is still resulting in a powerful proclamation of the gospel message in this closed communist nation. And this is a message that people desperately need to hear. Look, Paul doesn't mince any words in 1 Thessalonians. In verse 10, he tells us about Jesus who saves us from the wrath to come. So he's not being very politically correct. His message is about coming wrath. It is about the, God's just sentence of condemnation against sinners, which isn't something that we're accustomed to hearing. And it's not something that we're naturally inclined to listen to. People, myself included, want to be affirmed in their sin. We want to hear, follow your heart. Pursue the desires of your heart. Do what makes you happy. But the truth that we need to reckon with is just bluntly stated for us in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Deceitful and sick. Two words that describe the condition of the human heart. And that doesn't sound very nice, but I think if we just take a moment to look at the horrors of this world and look into the self-centered obsessions of our own hearts, then we can see this reality at work. Our hearts are corrupted. It's why we desire destructive things. It's why we get angry about what we get angry about and fear what we fear. It's why we feel the constant need to distract ourselves in an attempt to fill the empty void in our lives. The truth is that we're, we're not just people who make little mistakes, tell little white lies. We're not mistakers. We're not pretty good people with pretty good intentions. No, we are self-righteous, self-centered sinners. So what we need isn't a program or a list of rules or a life coach. 
No, what we need is a savior. We don't need another YouTube video telling us how to maximize productivity or how to be alpha or sigma or whatever happens to be cool. No, we need someone to rescue us from the wickedness that we have loved and nurtured in our hearts. The good news is that there is such a savior. He conquered the grave. He's the king of kings. He's God in the flesh, and his name is Jesus. And it is because of Jesus alone that I know on the day that I stand before the throne of God, I know, just as the hymn tells us, that I will stand in him complete. Jesus died my soul to save, so my lips shall always repeat. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Church, thank you so much for the way that you have lived, for the ways that you have lived in light of that reality. And may we never, ever become so foolish as to think we can move beyond that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you. God, we praise you for saving us, for rescuing us out of your love for us. God, what more could we ask for? You have taken lowly people, people who deserve judgment and death, and you have adopted us into your family. We have come from a low, low, terrible position to a position that should be envied by all people. God, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for your great kindness and your mercy. Thank you for loving us, God. We love you, we praise you, and we pray that you would be glorified in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.